and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast that looks at weird and wonderful stories of Scottish heritage and tries to figure out what they could mean in the modern day. I'm Annie. I'm Jenny. And I'm Sarah. Oh, hello, you're new. Yeah, I'm joining the podcast this week. Excellent, welcome to the fort. So what stories are we looking at this week? So this week we'll be looking at Victorian theatres in Inverness. Ooh, fun. So I grew up in Inverness and I've always been really interested in the arts and culture scene, but it feels like something that's always just been emerging here like we're trying to break new ground. But when we look into the archives, we see that performers have been breaking new ground in Inverness throughout time. All right, so this week we're going to take a trip back to the theatres of the 1840s and have a look at how the Highland stages reflect Highland life. Marvellous. And I guess the theatre is a good lens for how we view the multiple identities of Inverness which has always been a mix of both the urban and the rural highlands, being one of the centres for the industries and trade here. But I also find that the theatre shows us a wee fantasy of the place as well. It's a kind of make-believe. Aye. And Victorian Inverness has become a picture book for Romantic Scotland, but not all for happy reasons. So Victorian Inverness is kind of a paradox for Scottish identity. We're seeing the emergence of the tourist industry that will become the lifeblood of the town. However, we're also seeing the Highland people being forcibly removed from their land and their communities torn apart. Yeah, so the time that we're looking at, this is the aftermath of the 1745 Jacobite Rising and their final defeat at the Battle of Culloden. The government's response to these uprisings was to ensure that Scotland would not rebel again, and they stamped down hard on Highland and clan culture, banning the Gaelic language and Highland traditions. On top of this, we see rural and agricultural communities of the Highlands being cleared from the late 1700s and through the 1800s as part of the Highland clearances, where landowners are just literally forcing them off their land to make way for sheep. And on top of this again, throughout this period, Highlanders are facing several hardships, such as the potato famine. And this was a key food source for the people. So when their crops failed, the government and landlords encouraged them just to emigrate completely. Throughout the 1800s, people are being ripped from their homes for reasons totally out of their control. It's a pretty horrific time to be in the Highlands. It's a tragic chapter in Highland history. And the Highlands become this big open wound that the Victorians desperately want to bandage up. That bandage comes in the form of the Sir Walter Scott effect and the resulting romanticisation of the Highlands. So, Sir Walter Scott was a playwright who wrote his own vision of the Highlands as a kind of post-Culloden tragedy that highlighted both the sorrow and the beauty of the Highland plight. The issue here is that Walter Scott is kind of blending and merging a lot of Scottish cultures, misrepresenting and homogenising some pieces. So although this encourages a broader public sympathy for the Highland people, it creates this tragic romantic identity so strong that it actually seeps into the Highlanders' view of themselves. Okay, so Scott sort of wrote a fiction of the Highlanders and then this fiction actually ends up shaping them. Aye, very much so, and especially on the theatre stage. Okay. Performers are showing the Scottish people the, the kind of aristocratic dream of what they could be. However, there's also lots of beautiful things happening in Inverness. For example, in the late 1820s, the Ness Islands had these lovely wee bridges built to connect them. Throughout the Victorian period, the Ness Islands became adorned with paths, lights, amusements and refreshment stands. They became a key courting and leisure spot for the Victorian town. Oh yes, I love the Ness Islands. I didn't actually know the bridges went back that far. That's kind of amazing. But they still to this day have a very like Victorian feel about them. So they're basically islands up at the about maybe half a mile out of Inverness. 
city centre, so it doesn't take long to get to, and you walk around them, and there's beautiful old trees, massive tall cedars, you have some really rare cherries out there. It's beautiful, and it's a really nice place to walk even now. So Inverness had almost become a stage itself, a scenery of romantic Highland life, a stopping point for stag hunters, and a gateway to viewing the remote and mysterious heather-clad hills. But everyday life in the town is still quite hard, and people of different classes are going to be looking for leisure and entertainment, an escape from this rough world. And what better way to get a sixpence worth of happiness than at the theatre, a variety show in this splendid town? We start the 1800s with heavy constraints on what can and cannot be performed on stage. This is coming from the authoritarian government of the time. Theatres are restricted spaces and one of the few places where people from different classes can legally gather. Theatres and churches are really special shared meeting places. However, all plays need to be government approved. They need to go through the Lord Chamberlain's office. This means that everything going on stage is government approved. I mean, all the playbills said long live the Queen and Prince on them. This is much more than just conformity. They're trying to prove that they are on the same side as the ruling and the powerful classes. The language of these playbills is carefully constructed to make the theatre appear as a respectable night out, carefully abiding by strict regulations that the theatre must comply to. This government approval severely restricted the theatre that could appear in Scotland. I mean, what can we say about Scottish identity if we can't criticise those in power? After whiskey, rebellion is our main water of life. Hear, hear! Theatre was not very representational at all of the everyday Scot. Exactly. I mean, I read Macbeth in school and there's always so much relatable content in that. We have way more than three witches up here and blood comes off my hands fairly easily. Not again, Jenny. However, we have a couple of writers who are going to transform the Scottish stage. We have Joanna Bailey and Walter Scott, who were friends, playwrights and poets. Bailey wrote particularly for smaller stages. She constructed her words not just to be read aloud, but to be really performed and acted. She imagined them flowing into small barns lit by candlelight, where audiences could see the faces of the performers. And this in itself is very reflective of Highland culture. It mirrors the ways that Highlanders storytell and pass down their oral history, in small rooms, huddled around the fire, with everyone intently engaged on the entertainment. Yes, this respect for oral tradition is such a special element of Scottish theatre. This will be a cornerstone for so much of the Scottish performing arts. How a wee blether beside a fireplace is like a whole museum, packed with the rich stories of the past. Yes, Bailey and Walter Scott harnessed the power of the Scottish Highlands to decentralise the theatre at the time. Back then, it was very London and England focused, with people blissfully unconcerned with rural Scotland, or still perceiving them as dangerous, less civilised people. By writing romantic and critically acclaimed plays about Scotland and bringing them into both the English and Scottish theatre scenes, these playwrights allowed Scotland to find a certain type of identity on the stage. Although this was still quite a cautiously constructed identity, one that didn't worry the nervous government. However, this becomes a good foundation for future performance to build upon and flourish. So what inspired us to look at the theatre in the north of Scotland was a collection of old playbills held at the Highland Archive Centre in Inverness. The playbills are like big posters for the theatre productions that would be happening. 
They even offered shopkeepers a complimentary ticket for displaying them in the windows. The playbills are beautiful and they're printed locally by the Inverness Courier. Because they're from the 1840s onwards, they're this gorgeous, fragile sepia colour. And there's a lovely texture to them. Your fingers can feel the impressions from the leather plates of the printing press. Anyway, what kind of things are these playbills advertising? Right, so they usually begin by telling us who's commissioned the theatre show. Sometimes these are quite... Mm, pompous? <laughs> well, they have quite an air of flowery language. For example, Mr Glanville advertised in 1849 about the Theatre Royal, which sits in the middle of the town of Inverness. And just for context, Inverness was only made a city in the year 2000, so Victorian times it was still a small town. Yeah, so anyway, he advertised the Theatre Royal as commodious and comfortable. He describes the gallery of the theatre as being so solid and substantial that it could support any body of people with perfect security. The pit was compact and warm, and the boxes perfectly distinct from all parts of the house are enclosed by based partitions, warmed by a large fire with seats completely fabric covered. Sounds dreamy. Unlike that accent, it just sounds so opulent and luxurious, doesn't it? Imagine being a Victorian shopkeeper living in Inverness and being able to go and see this grand and lavish venue. I find a similar advert in 1842 from a Mr Watkins who offered a theatre experience that was for everyone. He said that... For the ambitious, the theatre offers a lesson in human frailty. For the compassionate, the theatre is a melting portrait of sorrow. For the economical, the theatre is a great variety for little cost. And for the critical, well, they can purchase a few bonbons easy of digestion. So beautiful, Jenny. Thank you. And that's definitely the best way to deal with critics is just bribing them with sweets. I just adore this fantasy that the theatre managers are trying to sell. But what struck our imaginations was when we noticed a woman inviting patrons to attend her nights at a theatre in Inverness. We'd seen her pop up across the playbills as an actress, and we were interested in how she moved into managing a theatre in the 1840s. What we discovered was a really intriguing actress and theatre manager. Her name was Mrs Ryder. Ah, the mysterious Mrs Ryder. Now, while I didn't think we'd be able to find much on the leading lady of the Inverness theatre scene, Annie and Sarah, you guys both did some pretty impressive digging and were able to get an incredible portrait of both her and the rural theatre in the 1800s. Okay, so her full name was Jessie Fraser and she was born circa 1801. Her father owned the Theatre Royal on Marischal Street in Aberdeen. And strangely enough, her brother was an extremely popular local clown named Tammy. Yes, Big Tam. Love that guy. Um, so Jessie Fraser, she was definitely from a thespian family that loved the stage. Yeah, she was. And she went on to marry the Welsh actor and theatre manager Corbett Ryder. And they then set up a touring theatre company which travelled round Scotland putting on hundreds of shows. Indeed. So they managed the theatre in Aberdeen and they toured across and to some degree managed several of the provincial theatres across rural Scotland, from Arbroath, Banff, Dundee, Perth, Montrose, and of course, our beloved Inverness. <laughs> this was locally known as the Northern Circuit, and the papers even refer to the riders taking their shows to towns like Elgin and Nairn, even suggesting that Wick had had such a good fishing season that the riders should take their theatre further north. Nothing says good fishing season like a good old play about Scotland. There was actually some variety songs about herrings. All right, so that's relevant. culturally relevant. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So 
So the theatre in Inverness that the writers frequented in the early to mid-Victorian period was known as Loge Rooms. This was a popular venue on Church Street which seemed to hold all kinds of events relating to arts and culture, such as balls, concerts and lectures. They were owned by Joseph Lowe, who was a traditional music and dancing tutor, and he actually taught Queen Victoria and her children traditional Scottish dancing when she stayed at Balmoral. However, there are a few bumps in the road for the theatre scene in Inverness. Here's a letter that was sent to the Inverness Courier in 1818, which completely and utterly rejects any notion that theatre could bring any public benefit. Sarah, can you be an outraged Invernesian? I already am. Sir... I have lately seen with considerable alarm indications of the threatened eruption of a strolling theatrical corps into this place. My objection is to all strolling theatre companies. Goes on to state... Wit and humour in passing through this ordeal. Degenerate into the vulgarest and most offensive buffoonery. And it gets even worse. Not only is this outraged in Venetian concerned about the type of performances in the theatre and how they may corrupt the morals of the people who spend their shillings on a show. But he also believes that the actors are condemned to awful lives of misery and sin. Did we ever hear a moonstruck youth devoting himself to this wretched calling, without regarding him as lost? Or of a young woman similarly situated, without bewailing her a creature forever ruined and outcast? And is this a profession which a sober-minded man ought to encourage? and ought not an extension of the same principle which leads us to set our faces against smugglers and sturdy beggars and vagrants of all descriptions, not more for the offence they occasion society than for the misery and degradation they entail upon themselves. He certainly did not like the theatre. But this is very interesting because we know that in the early modern period, Travelling theatre companies were banned for the fear that they would spread the plague. <laughs> However, this Invenetian chap is really concerned not about the physical plague that the theatre may bring, but rather a moral plague that the theatres might ignite. Fortunately, Inverness is very open-minded towards theatre and arts now, which is great for us. How did Jesse and Corbett win over the locals? Well, it was a Scottish play that won over the crowds. Rob Roy by Sir Walter Scott. Jesse Ryder was celebrated for the roles of Diana Verin, or Helen McGregor, and her husband Corbett Ryder took on the lead role of Rob Roy McGregor. Aye, Rob Roy. Well, this is an interesting play because it's about a famous outlaw and Jacobite, but crowds couldn't get enough of it. It stirred up a national spirit and pride in the people. When Mr. Ryder sadly passed away, Jesse managed the company with the help of her children all while maintaining her roles as leading lady. She was famed for her incredible singing voice and for playing a wide variety of roles, especially roles of Scottish women, and was highly acclaimed for her portrayal of Lady Macbeth. She remarried and took the name Jessie Pollock. She was certainly a powerhouse of Scottish theatre. I actually found a speech that Jessie gave celebrating her career in the 1850s. Jenny... Can you be an Aberdonian actress for me? I am all over the place this episode, but I think I can. My friends, it seems an age since first I trod this dear familiar stage. Since first, when tended by a father's hand, I formed the youngest of a once famed band. Since I fell in love, I may reveal it with you and you and you. Why now conceal it? Then I got lots of vows, love, gifts and letter from youths who've raved about Cupid's wings and fetter. 
Some of these billets do lie by me yet, and one there is I could never forget. So she's going to read us a love letter which would have been written for her after one of her performances, likely from a doting fan. Grant me, Apollo, all thy power, that I may fitly praise her. Fortune, I ask no other dower than just the charming Fraser. Oh, he's totally besmitten. Isn't that very innocent and pretty? But mark the next verse of the fond youth's ditty. Her form, it is divinely fair. Her eyes, as sharp as a razor. They've cut into my innermost heart, and there reigns sweet Miss Fraser. Aye, once I reigned, you see, and had my day. But those wild times are past, and I've lost my sway. Fond, cherished thoughts, that while in time I grew, from girl to wife, ye I were kind and true. Whatever my fate, wherever my steps might roam, here I found a welcome home. Symbols of seasons fled, still prized and dear. Some tempt to smile, while others claim a tear. Wow, that was really something, Jenny. Uh, thank you. I felt transported to the Victorian theatre. After reading the speech, Jessie would hold up a playbill with her name on it. She was proud of her contribution to theatre and in the north of Scotland she was well known and admired. She set up a legacy for travelling theatre companies in the north of Scotland. Exactly. It shows a real progression in Victorian society that a woman held the reins of a rural theatre in northern Scotland. But also, we see a rich development of Scottish theatre throughout this time period. The Lord Chamberlain's office relaxed their laws slightly and playwrights took advantage of this to write more relatable and representative plays. They also managed to subvert the laws by slightly changing the titles and the content. For example, if the Chamberlain's office refused a play about Bonnie Prince Charlie, then it's quite obvious that they rejected it on the grounds that it might incite a rebellion. But the same play, slightly tweaked to be set in the 16th century in Sweden, could just about slip through. But furthermore, we like to think that the rural locations of many areas meant that Jesse and Corbett Ryder were willing to try more daring bendings of the laws. And high variety shows became so popular in the Victorian era that they started to entwine elements of Highland poetry, bards and dances. Theatre in the north of Scotland has a really important influence on perceptions of Highlanders. One of the vital aspects of Invenetian and rural provincial theatre of this time period is that it has to be contextualised within the atrocities that were happening across the land. There's something quite tragic about the advertisements of theatre bonbons in the town, whilst the people are still being forced out of their homes in the countryside. However, the theatre is a really important space for people to get together and see a vision of their identity, let themselves reflect on who they are, figure out a future away from the tragedy. On the other hand, theatre would have been a treat, a wee escape into a fantasy for Victorian Inverness, and I think there's something quite beautiful about that. Absolutely. And I think what stood out to me the most was just how prominent a role women played in the theatre scene. The more we learn about Jessie Fraser slash writer slash Pollock, the more we discover her taking power and control in the spheres of theatre. That's us at the end of Victorian Invenetian Theatre. Thank you so much to Sarah for joining us this week. You're very welcome. 
And thanks to Ewan McFeeth for our lovely jingle. And thank you so much for listening to Stories of Scotland. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on Twitter. And we'll see you next week. Slanjava. 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 Actually, my first date that I went on when I came to Inverness was at the Ness Islands. So the courting still continues. We didn't didn't go very far, though. I mean, we went to the end of the islands, but the relationship just pretty much stopped.